too late and burn your hour away. Um, well, so if we haven't met, my name is Dan. I'm the site pastor for our Kewaskum location of Kettlebrook Church. And we are in our second week of a series called Compelling Christianity. And that video of Julie is just a great example of what happens when followers of Jesus don't just believe in the gospel, but live for the gospel. And what happens is that people notice and that lived out example becomes compelling. And so in the series, we've been going through the book of Titus, which is Paul's, the Apostle Paul's letter that he's writing to his young protege, Titus, and who he has left on the island of Crete to set up God's church there. And one of the things that Paul seems to do throughout this book and, and one of the things he talks about and to teach is what it looks like to live a compelling life for Jesus Christ, a life that's compelling to others. And last week, Mike talked about compelling leadership that, uh, and what, it, what compelling leaders look like. And right out of that passage, the Apostle Paul now kind of goes on and he talks about the opposite kind of folks, essentially uh, these kind of these people that push people away from Christ, anti-leaders, I guess. And so Paul tells Titus that if if the followers of Jesus on Crete want to live a life that's compelling for Jesus, and essentially to be compelling Christ followers, they need to watch out for these anti-leaders, uh, these these people that are deceivers, and and he gives them essentially a heads up. And I don't know if you guys watch PBS very much or if you've ever seen Rick Steves. Rick Steves is that uh, travel guru who's pretty nerdy, um, but he's pretty smart. He's got all the secrets. And so uh, one of the things that he does in almost every episode is he kind of gives like a heads up for something and something to watch out for. So like watch out that you don't get overcharged for cabs in Prague or uh, watch out when, uh, let's see, you're, you're in the Vatican and there's the long line and there's the short line and uh, watch out when you're in Munich that you don't pay too much for lodging. And, and I have one, uh, I'm not sure if I got this from Rick Steves or not, so this is my travel heads up. So if, if you ever find yourself in New Orleans and a, a young man approaches you, and um, what ends up happening is quite often someone will say, I bet you 10 bucks I can tell you where you got your shoes. And don't be savvy thinking, there's no way that he probably could know that I got these boots at Flea Farm. Uh, and then be like, okay. <laughs> because what he'll say is, you know where you got your shoes? You got your shoes on your feet? <laughs> Give me 10 bucks. <laughs> so, true story, this, this has happened to me, uh, but I had, I had been given that heads up. And so, when he was like, you know, I bet I can tell you where I got your shoes. I was like, I got my shoes on my feet. And he's like, <laughs> I've been given a good heads up. Well, in the passage we're going to look at, Paul isn't just talking about losing 10 bucks. He's talking about something much more serious. And, and really what he's, he's doing is he's giving Titus a heads up about these scam artists. Uh, and so if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. If you'd like a Bible to use, Dave and Marilyn would love to bring one up to you. And so just wave boldly at them. They'll, they'll come up and give you a Bible and a smile. And if you, by the way, if... This is always one of our things that we'd love to say and so that you know. If you would like 
a Bible, by all means, take one of these. We want to make sure that God's word is read and it is out there um, so that we as his people can know his life-giving words. And so we're going to look at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. That's on page 844 of those red Bibles. So let's read that. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, before we go further, let's just, let's just take a moment to pray. So please pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that um, we can dig into this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, uh, that we can uh, look at the wisdom that you were giving Paul for your church, for your people. And I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds um, so that we could see what it is, how you are wanting to lead us, how you are wanting us to be compelling followers for Jesus. And I pray that Jesus would be glorified this morning and that everything we do, we sing, we say, would be for the name of Jesus and that he would be lifted high. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this all started with the word for, uh, which is essentially like because. So what, what's happening is it means it's, it's connected to the statement that came before. And what came before was that section that Mike talked on last week about compelling leadership. And the very last thing that's mentioned in that section is verse 9. And verse 9 is, is to the leaders, and it says this, A leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And those who oppose it are these anti-leaders, these, these rebellious talkers and deceivers. And Paul talks about those from the circumcision group. And, and basically what these guys are is it's a whole group that has essentially a, a, a group of Jewish kind of quote-unquote Christians that has taken Jesus and, and syncretized and synthesized him and they adapted Jesus into their own lives. And instead of being changed by Jesus, transformed by Jesus, they just simply fit religion and religious rules into their lives. And, and more than that, they were teaching others that it was necessary to follow those rules too. And those rules were like circumcision. Uh, don't do anything on the Sabbath. Don't eat non-kosher foods. Uh, you have to still go to the temple to make sacrifices. Don't do this, don't do that, and on and on. 
And unfortunately, these guys were passing themselves off as genuine leaders of the church, and they began to profit from it. Actually, I watched a show just this last week on TV about this group of money counterfeiters. And it was so fascinating, the lengths of which these guys went to pass off their counterfeit money, what they were doing with the ink and with the, the, piece, the paper, all of it, uh, the great lengths that they went to fool people to make it look like the real thing. Uh, and they made a ton, ton of money doing this. These Jesus counterfeiters uh, were luring people into something that looked like the gospel on the surface. But it wasn't the gospel at all. And I don't know if, if you've ever had that experience of being fooled by something or, or being faked by something, um, things that look like the genuine article but aren't. I'm a, I'm a collector, so I've, you know, there's one of my collections are World War II medals. I've, in my time of buying, I've, I've actually bought a few fakes, um, and they look like the genuine article, but they weren't. But my absolute worst experience um, with something that was not the genuine article happened about 10 years ago. Uh, it was, Sharice and I were over at my parents' house, and um, that was back when my brother was still living there with his cat. And I remember um, we were just there for the whole day, and I, I think earlier in the day, <clears throat> I'd been walking around with some chocolate. It's a German household, so, you know, eating bars of chocolate is totally normal. Um, and so then later that evening, I think I was walking through the dining room, and I looked down, and I saw what looked like a piece of chocolate. And, and being the kind of chocolate eater I am, that I couldn't let a good piece of German chocolate go to waste, I bent down and picked it up and popped it in my mouth. It wasn't chocolate. Remember my brother's cat? It was a dingleberry. <laughs> I put cat poop in my mouth. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't swallow it, and I just went running to the bathroom with my tongue all like a ah, <laughs> wash it out as quick as I can. It looked like chocolate, <laughs> but I was definitely fooled. Uh, but at least, at least, my brother's cat wasn't like intentionally going and putting dingleberries and wrapping them in chocolate wrappers, right? <laughs> But these guys that Paul's talking about, they were purposely wrapping their false message in the package of the gospel. And in verse 11, Paul says they need to be silenced because this false message is destroying whole households, whole families, because it doesn't bring the freedom found in Christ, but the bondage found in rules. It doesn't bring the power of the gospel. It only brings powerless legalism. And then when we, if we jump down to verses 15 and 16, we're told that these deceivers have an inability to see anything as pure or good. Everything they do and think is corrupted, and they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. And so Paul has some strong words at the end, and he, he says they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good, Essentially, like counterfeit money, they're worthless. And their counterfeit message is worthless. But the problem that Paul and the early church had, was, especially in Crete, was that this counterfeit was selling. 
And, and these guys were making money off of it. And the reason was because the people of Crete were desperate for order. I don't know if you um, have ever seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but um, there was in the first one, they had sort of that pirate's island. I think it was called Tortuga. And, and it was just kind of this like crazy place of like full of fighting and, and drunks and prostitution. And that was, that's kind of Crete. Uh, it, it was a pirate's paradise. It was a place of wild living. And in verse, Paul, in verse 12, Paul uses a quote from the Cretan poet Epimenides who said essentially what all Cretans already knew. Cretans are messed up. And because they were so messed up, these were a people who were ripe for rules. They were ripe for order, ripe for religion. And they were almost desperate for it. Actually, just this weekend, uh, I was talking to, to Troy Lather, our, our West Bend site pastor, and uh, he had just gotten back from a, a weekend trip to New York City visiting family. And uh, I have in my office just this huge map of New York. And so he was pointing out to me on the map all the places that he had been. And uh, he had come home real um, early Monday morning. And one of the things and one of the places that they had been to was the bike path that the terrorists killed all the people just one day later. And it was just sobering to think about that. And one of the even more sobering things as, as we were talking was uh, something I had read in the news. And as I understand, the, the terrorist wasn't a radical Muslim that was sent here to sabotage, but rather that he was just a normal immigrant that came here and was radicalized here in the States. That he looked around and essentially saw a wild Crete-like society and the rigors and the demands and the laws of radical Islam filled a void. And he was ripe for rules. And there were deceivers gladly willing to give him a religion filled with rules. Looking back at verse 13, Paul says this testimony is true. The Cretans were, are drawn to these religious myths and rules. And, and because of deceivers that reject the truth, the Cretan Christians were starting to be swayed. Uh, but Paul, interestingly, doesn't tell Titus to kick these guys out of the church, these Cretans that have bought into all this stuff, but rather, instead, he says to rebuke them sharply. And other versions say, correct them or refute them, and, and, or even convict them. And to what end? Well, verse 13, again, if you look at that, says, so that they will be sound in the faith. The goal is to restore them. So when I read this, this passage of Scripture, uh, I found myself kind of having a series of questions right off the bat. And I wrote them down. And I think they might be a good place for us to start with asking some of these questions as well. And so here's the questions that I had. Does a world like Crete still exist? Do people like the hypocritical religious circumcision group still exist? And do people like the easily swayed, ripe for rules Cretans? still exists? And if so, what then? 
And so let's start off with that first question. Does a world like Crete still exist, a, a pirate's paradise, a moral hole? Um, well, remember Epimenides said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Uh, does a world like that still exist? Well, if you guys know me, you know one of the things I did, of course, is I went to Google. And so I started typing. If you've ever used search engines, you know how it works. You start typing something, and then it automatically will fill in the rest of the sentence for you. And actually, Google wasn't very helpful, so I had to go to Bing. But so, I t- remember Epimenes said, Cretans are. So I typed in, Americans are. And this, this is what, what Bing came up with. So, uh, overweight, poor, scared, busy, sensitive, afraid, immigrants. All right, that's a decent start. Definitely had the gluttonous part in there for sure. Uh, but overall, I don't think we need a search engine to tell us that, yeah, a world like Crete does still exist. And so the next question, do people like the hypocritical religious circumcision group still exist? It, it would be easy to say yes and just point to some of those major televangelists like Baker, Swaggart, Haggard, uh, these people who've had these huge scandals. Uh, but I think there's something that actually brings this a little closer to home and that I think that also answers that last question. Do people like the easily swayed, right for rules, Cretans still exist? And Ryan Latour, our Jackson site pastor, uh, shared this story with me from author Carl Menderes. And this is what Carl says. I've been reading Don Miller's book, Searching for God Knows What. In his book, he tells a story about one occasion when he was speaking to a class at a Christian college. And he stood in front of the group and announced that he was going to share the gospel with them. With one difference. He was going to leave out one critical element. He warned them in advance that it was a major part and he would require them to tell him what it was afterward. He went on to describe the rampant sin that plagued our culture, homosexuality, abortion, drug use, song lyrics on the radio, newspaper headlines, and so on. He said that according to scripture, the wages of sin is death. And he talked about the way sin separates us all from God. He went on to describe the beauty of morality and told stories, citing examples of how righteous living was better. He spoke of the greatness of heaven and described it complete with a landscape of spectacular beauty. He talked about teen pregnancy, sexual transmitted diseases, and all the supporting statistics. And finally, he gave the caveat, repentance. How it would make life purposeful and pure and full of meaning going into detail about what it is they would be saved from if they would only repent and how their lives could be God-honoring and God-centered. Describing what happened when he finished the lecture, Miller writes, I rested my case and asked the class if they could tell me what it was that I had left out of the gospel presentation. He waited for several awkward minutes. Not a single hand raised. No one could identify the missing component of the gospel. As far as the students could tell, Miller had been complete. Closing his case, Miller writes, I presented the gospel to Christian Bible College students and left out Jesus. And nobody noticed. 
Even when I said I was going to neglect something very important, even when I asked them to think very hard about what it was, even when I stood there for several minutes in silence, Miller concludes, to a culture that believes they go to heaven based on whether or not they are morally pure or they understand some theological issues or that they are very spiritual, Jesus is completely unnecessary. At best, he's an afterthought, a technicality by which we become morally pure or a subject of which we know or a founding father of our spirituality. Does a world like Crete still exist? Yes. Do people like the hypocritical, religious, circumcision groups still exist? Yes. Do people like the easily swayed, ripe for rules, Cretans still exist? Yeah. And so, what now? Well, this series is called Compelling Christianity. And and so if all of these statements are true, I think this leads us to ask another set of questions. What are we following and what are we leading people to? We're supposed to be compelling followers, but are we compelling followers of religion like the Cretans were? Or are we compelling followers of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is personal justice more important than mercy? Is fairness more important to us than compassion? Is morality more important than grace? Is being right more important to us than kindness and gentleness? Is safety and security more important to us than hospitality and love? If these are true, we might be following religion. What are we following? Because what we follow is what will lead people to. We might be compelling people towards something that's not the gospel. And that could be because we ourselves have been compelled by something that looked like the gospel on the surface that we thought was the gospel, but that turned out to be a counterfeit because it lacks a single thing. Jesus, the real, true Jesus. And instead it substitutes in a religion of rules where Jesus' name is only used as a placeholder for morality. Okay. Remember what I said at the beginning? This passage has a little bit of a negative tone to it. Um, But I think that underlying and throughout this, that there is an important takeaway. And that important takeaway is that compelling Christ followers reject religion and live for the gospel. I'm going to say that again. And it's in, it's in your handout if you want to see it. Compelling Christ followers reject religion and live for the gospel. And I think that this passage shows us at least three good ways that we do that, that we can reject religion and live compelling lives for the gospel. And we do that, we encourage and correct, we believe and act, and we know the genuine from the fake. And so the first way that we live as compelling Christ followers is to encourage and correct. Verse 9, which we looked at, uh, which comes right before our passage, uh, says encourage 
others. Verse 13 said, rebuke or correct them. And this is not about being right. So don't, you know, it's not about going and joining uh, chat rooms and online forums and, and disproving and having all the right arguments. No, this is about returning people to the Lord, returning people to the gospel message, restoring people in love. So in your conversations, when you're talking about Jesus, when you're talking about God, when you're talking about the world, are you negative? Do you look at the world and then see it all as falling apart and complain that it's not the way it used to be, that uh, the prayer's not in school, God we trust might come off of the money, who knows what's going on with the Pledge of Allegiance these days? Well, that's, that's religion. Or do you look at the world and see it how Jesus sees it. Do you see how Jesus is wanting to draw it to himself? And not just it, but the people in it. Not, not blow it up or burn it all down, but restore it. Restore and redeem the people of this world. That's the gospel. And yeah, the gospel does have elements of bad news that, that all have sinned and are only worthy of judgment and wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come. He is risen. He is victorious. He paid the penalty on our behalf. That's good news. That's a positive message. So no, no matter what evil exists, morality won't fix it. Rules won't save you. Religion can't redeem you. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and a loving relationship with him can do that. And when followers of Jesus stray from that, that message, that positive message of the gospel, remind them of that. Remind them of the good news. Rebuke, correct, and, and realign those that are starting to focus on the bad news. The bad news isn't compelling. It's the good news, the gospel, that's compelling to the world around us. And we also live as compelling followers of Christ when we believe and when we act. In verse 9, again, that came before our passage, and then the very next verse that comes after our passage, both use the same phrase, sound doctrine. And you know what's right square in the middle of the passage? Sound faith. It's a gospel sandwich. (laughs) You've got sound faith in the middle and sound doctrine on the outsides. Faith is the meat and doctrine is the bread. You take away the meat of faith and you've got just the stale bread of doctrine. You take away the bread of doctrine and you've got nothing to hold the meat of faith together. See, when Paul says sound doctrine and sound faith, that word sound actually has a connotation of health. And it, it, that we don't have a healthy, balanced life without both sound doctrine and sound faith. Doctrine is what we believe. Faith is what we do and how we act. And Paul accuses the deceivers in verse 16, claiming to know God, but by their actions, denying him. So knowing the word without living the word, knowing about Jesus without living like Jesus, is religion. 
And our lives become compelling when we aren't just known for what we do or don't believe in, but by how we live because of what we believe. And then last, and I think this one's the most important, uh, we live as compelling Christ followers when we know the genuine from the false, from the fake. And that TV show that I saw about the, the money counterfeiters, uh, one of the more interesting things that they talked about was how the FBI doesn't actually know, uh, and, and they doesn't, they, every fake, really, that, that's out there, uh, they simply can't. There's too many. They come to know uh, some specifically and, and some that are particularly convincing, but what they know and what they study is the genuine article. Their, their intimate knowledge with the real thing is what helps them spot a fake quicker than anything else. Compelling followers of Christ know how to spot a fake because of their intimate knowledge with the genuine article. And, and if you noticed, I, I purposely spelled genuine with a capital G. Compelling followers of Christ spend time with Jesus. And when we spend time with Jesus in his word, in prayer, in service, in worship, in love, we come to know him in a way that helps us spot the fakes and then silence their noise. As leaders, we don't need to do extensive training on spotting every counterfeit. We simply can't. There's, there's, there's just too many. But by their actions, they'll reveal themselves. Rather, as leaders, we want to continue to fo- have us focus not on the fakes or the counterfeits or the scam artists causing fear about their existence. We know they exist. But we want to continue to focus on Jesus, the genuine article, and, and on knowing and living out his gospel. Encourage and correct, believe and act, and know the genuine, capital G, from the fake. That's how we reject religion and live for the gospel as compelling followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, let's pray together. Father, we know in Scripture it, there uh, are, are numerous times where you are teaching us to be careful, to watch out. Um, and, but at the same time, you're not uh, drawing us into fear you're not drawing us to hole up. You're not drawing us to uh, let go, get rid of all of the values of the gospel just because we do need to be careful and watch out. And so, Father, I ask that, that you would teach us to continue to, to understand what it looks like to live a compelling life for Jesus Christ. That you would continue to help us see what is religion, um, what, what parts of maybe even what we're believing is just r- religion, just rules, just stuff to think about. And, and Father, I ask that, that you would be the one in our hearts, in my heart, that would convict and correct, lead, lead us to the truth so that we could know how to essentially get that out to, to, to reject it as false so that our hearts are open to your gospel so that we would live for your gospel.
that we would live for the message of Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would do this work within us, within this church body, within this family. And and more than anything, Lord, I ask that you would use this church family then to reach our, our greater Kewaskam area, that we could be a compelling family of followers of Jesus Christ. And we, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.